questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Shouldn't it be considered that every breath we take is laden with highly toxic particles that are wreaking havoc in our own bodies? Particles that aren't being reported by any air quality testing systems. The climate engineering nanoparticulates are exponentially smaller than what is actually allowed. They go virtually unreported. These nanomaterials generate reactive oxygen species in biological materials, damage tissue, lead to advanced aging, cause cancer, causative agents of dementia. They might think they're doing something positive for humanity to save our species, but they're also poisoning all life. If the climate engineering operations, which are derailing Earth's life support systems, are not immediately exposed and halted, all other challenges for the human race become moot because the planet will no longer support life. We are in completely uncharted territory. Virtually the entire web of life is being systematically contaminated and decimated by the ongoing climate engineering operations. On top of all other forms of human or anthropogenic activity that are wreaking havoc in the web of life, climate engineering, mathematically, statistically speaking, is the single greatest and most immediate threat we collectively face short of nuclear cataclysm. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at VeritasRadio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Dane Wigington has a background in solar energy. He's a former employee of Bechtel Power Corp. and was a licensed contractor in California and Arizona. He has been engaged in constant climate and geoengineering research for the last 15 years. He owns a wildlife preserve next to Lake Shasta in Northern California. They put all his focus, effort, and energy researching the climate engineering issue when he began to lose very significant amounts of solar uptake due to the ever-increasing solar obscuration caused from jet aircraft spraying in the skies above his mountaintop home. He's the lead researcher for geoengineeringwatch.org and has investigated all levels of geoengineering from stratospheric aerosol geoengineering to solar radiation management to ionosphere heater facilities like HARP. Dane has appeared in numerous films and radio interviews in an effort to educate the public on the extremely dire environmental and health dangers we face from the ongoing global climate intervention programs. Excellent. Okay. All right. In five, four, three, two. I've already read the intro, so we don't have to go there. Just going to introduce you in five, four, three, two, one. And direct from Lake Shasta, I would like to welcome Dane Wigginton. Hello, Dane, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? As well as can be, Mel, given the circumstances that we face here and that are unfolding around the planet that hopefully more are taking notice of and and we hope looking at the sky and connecting some dots. I understand. And by the way, we last spoke in 2014. How has your 
research evolved in the last eight years? What is new and have you come to new conclusions, a way to stop this? Well, certainly in that time frame, we have greatly expanded our knowledge and understanding of what's happening in our skies, the consequences from it. I think more people are certainly taking notice of the constant climate cataclysm that's occurring all over the globe. We know that the system is completely rigged, Mel, to try to refute and deny the existence of this, these incredibly obvious atmospheric aerosol operations, the radio frequency microwave transmissions that go with them. If we're back to 2014, I've, I've had meetings going back that far with, for example, Governor Newsom in California, and the entire system knows this is going on, and, and Newsom being just a tool of that system, but the entire system designed to, again, hide and deny the ongoing climate engine operations for obvious reasons, Mel, because the populations around the globe, if they knew their governments had done this without their knowledge or consent, crushing crops, crushing lives, societies, uh, what would you think the response would be if populations knew? No, absolutely. And I wonder sometimes, Dane, there's a law, I forget which one it was, so I can't cite it, that says that you cannot experiment on the population or spray above populated areas. Is this why they keep this covertly as opposed to overtly? Well, there's a number of laws. For example, if we look at, let's go back even further, after Project Popeye, which was the U.S. military's weather climate engineering operations over Vietnam in the 60s, they were so successful that in 1976, they passed what's called the NMOD Treaty, the Environmental Modification Treaty, forbidding any such climate intervention operations. But what they didn't forbid was conducting those operations over a country's own population. And not that any government or official... uh, organizations, militaries, global powers, they don't pay any attention to to these treaties anyway. But we have, certainly there's other environmental laws that require public knowledge or consent, but no one pays any attention to that, of course. They do whatever they want because they can. Did anyone give those in power permission to detonate 2,400 nuclear bombs? The nuclear detonations in Nevada alone that were done covertly, we now know from peer-reviewed study, were responsible for no less than half a million U.S. deaths from the downwind fallout from those operations. Half a million. How many people know that? And that's that's just what we officially know about. So again, those in power do what they want because they can, because we have populations that are too busy looking at their iPhones to look up. You mentioned Project Popeye. What was the other project that allowed, I mean, I guess they use Agent Orange to to defoliate the areas to, to uncover the Viet Cong Is that something that's still being used right now? And this is why we're seeing trees dying the way they are? Well, that's a very important question. Now, thank you for that. And we we just found and posted a 140-page U.S. military document titled Forest Fires as a Military Weapon. In that document, they describe in great detail exactly what we see occurring to force even within the, the U.S.'s own borders, the desiccation of the forest with desiccant particles, aluminum, barium, strontium, manganese, the drying out of the atmosphere, the toxifying of soils to, to kill forest foliage. And that this is, again, exactly what's described in this document, forest fires as a military weapon. And what is even more alarming within this document, there is about two dozen regions 
studied for the best burn windows in those regions. About a dozen of those are in the U.S., including Mount Shasta is one of those burn window target regions named in this military document, as well as U.S. ally countries, countries like France, Portugal, Spain, all of which burned to the ground this summer. I think that's interesting. And especially when we know the effect of the aerosol spraying operations are exactly what's described in this document from the U.S. military, posted at humandreamwatch.org. So again, we can speculate as to motives and agendas, and we, we, we know many of those. Crushing crops at this point is so consistent with climate cataclysm that it can only be considered an objective. It is far too consistent to be considered just a consequence of climate engineering. So uh, one thing, and, and I'll finish with this, it's important for populations to, to stop and consider the planet's failing life support systems can no longer support the global populations. That's a fact of the matter. Those in power bear the most responsibility for this paradigm, but populations have been all too willing to go along. But knowing that, is it not rational to consider those in power are doing everything they can to coal populations. That's that's a term that most people are not willing to even consider. But why would we not consider that when we have statements from former presidential advisors like Zygmunt Brzezinski, who just passed away, I think, in 2017, advisors to presidents all the way back to Johnson, stating on the record, with today's technology, it's much easier to kill a million people than to control them. Well, you mentioned... California Governor Gavin Newsom, who seemed to be at the forefront of Agenda 2030, the Green New Deal, and the climate change tax at lowering gasoline-powered vehicles in the near future. Is this proof that he and others who sound like him, Justin Trudeau and from Canada, and Jacinda Ardern from New Zealand, all come to mind? I would put them all in the exact same categories you just have. I fully agree with you. And and for those in the environmental camps that are buying into the new Green Deal type agenda, and it, it's simply at best some of the, the, the current technologies available for alternative forms of energy at best are fossil fuel extenders. They're not renewable in any sense. And again, this is part of my background. My home is on the cover of the world's largest renewable energy magazine. I have solar, wind, and hydropower. I work for Bechtel Power, the world's largest engineering firm. But I've seen these facilities firsthand. I worked on them. I worked on the first commercial solar plant of its type in the continental U.S. in Daggett, California. That plant is gone. It's a blowing field of sand now. It was dysfunctional from, from day one. In fact, I would recommend your listeners view a film called Planet of the Humans. They can find that online. It's about renewable energy and the fact that it's not renewable in any sense of the word. Now, in me saying this, is that any way advocating for carbon fuels? No, it is not. Just because one is bad doesn't mean the other is good. So it's important to remember the human race has painted itself into an incredibly dark corner. And the immediacy of what we face, Mel, can't be overstated. If we look at statistical trajectories, we are perilously close to hitting the wall at full velocity. By the way, the bandwidth and the sound quality keeps going up and down. I'm not sure if you have windows open or if you're far away from your the router. Just just an FYI. Uh, no, none of the above. So I'll, I'll just try to stay motionless as I can and uh, hope for the best. Okay. Now, I can understand if a new generation is born watching chemtrails in the sky, uh, Dane, they, they probably would think that is normal. 
But I'm puzzled with the people who should remember the time when these patterns were not present in our skies, and they still call it contrails. Why do you think that about three decades later, and I know this has been happening since probably World War II, but three decades later from the 90s, which is when I noticed the change, most people still believe the condensation trail lie. I think a form of normalcy bias, an unwillingness to to face the ramifications of being sprayed like a lab test animal, and that's indeed what we are. You're correct as far as the duration. These programs were first fully deployed immediately after World War II. In regard to that narrative, narrative, the uh, condensation trail, if you will, uh, perhaps uh, one of the greatest deceptions ever perpetrated on populations around the globe. We have up-close film footage of these aircraft at altitude, nozzles visible, turning on and off. End of debate. This is not condensation. We know that all military tankers and all commercial carrier aircraft are equipped with what's called a high-bypass turbofan jet engine. It's a jet-powered fan. 90% of the air that moves through that engine is not combusted. That engine, by design, is nearly incapable of producing any condensation trail except under rare circumstances. So people simply want to believe what feels most comfortable, Mel, as I know you know. And this trend must be broken because we don't have much time. Perhaps in the 60s and 70s, with older military and commercial jet engines, you could see a lot of smoke coming out of the engines. I remember going to the airport as a child, and I remember smelling them and seeing the smoke. But today's engines are essentially clean fans. And they're, you said this in your documentary, they're incapable of producing any condensation trails except under rare circumstances. And if it does, they don't linger and dissipate rather quickly. If it's not condensation, it has to be something else being added. What's the additive? And we've discussed strontium, barium, aluminum, and now I hear of manganese too. What else are they putting in? Graphene. Graphene too. We have, in, in the last nearly 200 precipitation tests, we have found graphene in nearly every single test, as well as polymer fibers, as well as surfactants. Mel, have you noted that in these flash winter cool down events, when it goes from in cases like Denver, Colorado, that is routinely in the last several years gone from record high temperatures in the 80s to single digits in snow in less than 24 hours. You've yes. seen those types of events happen, right? So we know surfactants are in the mix because we've tested for that. Surfactants are what makes soap soap. affects the molecular tension of water molecules. It makes the chemically nucleated frozen material. Again, this is an engineered surface cool-down event, engineered winter, if you will, and it makes that material extraordinarily slick. So we see massive traffic pileups everywhere. People who thought they knew how to drive in the snow now don't because it's a completely different composition. Uh, I, I know this firsthand from my childhood driving through snow in the mountains or near where I lived. And, and now it's, uh, it's a very different composition material because it's chemically nucleated, full of toxic elements like those you just named. And in the case of graphene, what's more alarming still, graphene by itself in nanoparticle form, and all these particles are nanoparticles, by the way, the most toxic size, because the smaller they are, the more harmful they are, the more easily they're absorbed into our system. In the case of graphene, it's like a molecular and vascular machete that slices through our vascular system, and it can be used as a biological carrier. So, in 
theory, and why would we think they wouldn't be doing this? It can be used to carry a biological from the cloud to the ground. I'm just puzzled here because in the past almost three years now, and I have to watch, Dane, what I say because every word, as you know, is being censored. But in the stingers that a lot of people are getting, it is reported that graphene oxide or graphite oxide is included. But I've always wondered, why couldn't they deploy this in nanoparticulates from chemtrails? And the answer that that's probably what's happening right now. If that's the case, are they using some kind of, some kind of technology? I know, for example, HARP is used after the planes deploy the, 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 the nanoparticles in order to use different sound frequencies to, to you know, create forms and, and dissipate uh, or, or lift weather patterns to change them. But do you think now they're using graph, graphene in order to attack, literally, the human population? My answer to that would be, why would they think, why would we think that they wouldn't do this? Why would we think they wouldn't? And let me, let me add this to the equation. We have an audio, we own it at geoengineeringwatch.org, an audio of the world's second most recognized geoengineer, Dr. Ken Caldera, who is a former Department of Defense scientist. And we have, in his own words, him stating on the record that what one of the things he did for the U.S. Department of Defense was to design methods of spraying pathogens into clouds to infect the populations below. Mr. Caldera now works directly for Bill Gates. Bill Gates has called him his, quote, most amazing teacher. When we have initial infections of the CV-19 scenario, 85 countries in three days, that's an astoundingly broad and uniform dispersion. When we have Italian scientists stating on the record that they have found CV-19 particles attached to airborne particulates, do these puzzle pieces all connect? Absolutely. As you said, now, I would be surprised if they're not using it. Since so many people, and by the way, many people thought that, and I don't mean to get into the CV-19 scenarios, but... The media told us that, oh, 85 to 90% of the U.S. population has already gone through it. But more and more data shows that it's about 68%. We're in the lowest uh, VED population in the world. So there's hope there, folks. But I had a discussion with a chemtrail skeptic years ago, and I asked him how he explained a trail stopping for 10 seconds and resuming immediately. And he told me, well, I'm a pilot, and it's because the aircraft changed altitude and it seems they just don't want to see it. Why is that? They just completely, they cannot engage in suspension of, suspension of disbelief. They can't. It's like telling them their religion is not correct. Hmm. And in regard to the type of phenomenon you just spoke about, the on-off, which again is inarguable evidence of spray dispersion, some will try to make the argument that that's a, a alteration in the atmospheric composition, atmosphere, atmospheric changes are horizontal, not vertical. You don't have vertical layers in the atmosphere, which is what would be required for that type of phenomenon to have any basis whatsoever. And I would challenge people to consider if they see a documentary of a researcher in Antarctica that's, whose breath is condensing, of course, because of the cold air, does that person have a cloud hanging above them? for a half hour or, or an hour or two hours, condensation does not behave in that manner. And again, we have film footage of these aircraft, nozzles visible, turning on and off. So whenever we see someone or get a comment from someone that says they're a pilot and they say whatever it is they say, 
uh, we, we don't take that even seriously at this point. What, whether they are a pilot or not, uh, quite simply, that's just a person that's uh, either trying to be a troll or neck deep in denial. Now, I question the following, and this is something that I wanted to ask you for a long time. We're told the goal is to go to zero CO2 emissions by 2050 or sooner. They call it net zero. But doesn't every plant and tree require CO2 in order to survive? And those are the same trees that give us oxygen. And while I'm at this, let me just say this, folks. Why do the most greenhouse operators have CO2 generators? Check this out. Carbon dioxide is an essential ingredient in green plant growth, and it's a primary environmental factor in greenhouses. CO2 generators automatically provide the carbon dioxide needed to meet maximum growing potentials. So, Dane, what is wrong with this picture? This is a very important question, and it's very important to consider all the factors related to this question. First, yes, CO2 is necessary, essential, but too much too fast cannot be assimilated by organisms that are not adapted to that. If, if we're without water for a short period of time, we die. If we're 10 feet underwater, we die even faster. So in, in regard to CO2, we have completely altered atmospheric chemistry. And there's so many layers to this question, Mel. Again, we have on top of the atmospheric gas makeup question, we have toxic elements that we know are harmful to soil microorganisms, root systems, aluminum being at the top of that list, but all the other organisms as well. We know from peer-reviewed study that in case of aluminum, it affects root systems, causes them to shut down nutrient uptake. This is in addition to killing soil microbiome. The plants die a slow, protracted death from the ground up. It's destroying the ozone layer. That's releasing massive UV radiation. That's thwarting plant growth. But back to the CO2. When you alter atmospheric chemistry this radically, this fast, organisms are not adapted to that. In regard to the greenhouses, yes, they do push CO2 levels up quite high in many cases, up to uh, 1,200 uh, ppm at times. But they have to purge those greenhouses at night, and they do. They purge that excess CO2 out at night because you have to have massive amounts of soil augmentation to allow that plant to even begin to assimilate that CO2. So what I would point out to people, again, this is a very complex equation. And although CO2 is necessary, too much is not helpful. It's reducing the protein makeup of pollen, for example. It's reducing the protein content of crops. It's, it's not what we need in the equation. That being said, the more harmful element to the planet by far is climate engineering operations because plants, as you correctly stated, if we had not interfered with the climate system with climate engineering, we would have had forests that would have uptaken far more CO2 than they have, but they can't because of the factors I just mentioned, the soil contamination, soil microbiome, UV, we now have forests that can't even function. They're not breathing. Forests don't smell like forests anymore because, again, the intense UV, they're shutting their stomata, their respiratory ports, so they can't absorb carbon. They can't release oxygen. The trees that aren't burning up are dying by the day. Now let's go to plankton. Climate engineering destroying the ozone layer. Again, we're getting UVC in the surface. That's a DNA-damaging spectrum of UV radiation. We, we face a near-term extinction level event from ozone layer collapse alone. What does near-term mean? Centuries out? Decades out? No, later this decade. 
on the current statistical trajectory we've faced functional ozone layer collapse later this decade. Climate engineering is the core causal factor. That's killing plankton. Plankton, as you know, single greatest absorber of CO2 on the planet. Climate engineering is literally annihilating the plankton populations. Plankton also, largest single source of oxygen production on the planet. We recently got peer-reviewed study, Mel, of plankton populations in the Atlantic. 90% down. 90. No plankton, no people. No plankton, no people. And that doesn't that create, isn't that a catalyst for more methane into the atmosphere? Yes, and the methane equation is also very core to this because if we look at the CO2 equivalent, so we have a, a pre-industrial CO2 content of 280, 280 ppm parts per million. We're up to about 420 now. And again, that's, a, that's an inconceivable increase in the geologic blink of an eye. But what's never talked about, what's not included in the modeling by design is the other atmospheric acids, starting with methane. Methane over a 10-year time horizon is... 120 times more potent than CO2 as a greenhouse gas. And we're not talking about cow flatulence here, which is just a, that's a premise they use to divide people, to anger them, and to take their eye off the wider horizon. As the planet warms, as, as the oceans are warming, and they are warming at cataclysmic speed, we have formerly frozen methane deposits on the seafloor that are thawing and releasing. Mel, this is the Bermuda Triangle scenario. This is exactly what's causing the ship sinkings. It's accepted science consensus. Whole fields tend to release at once. That aerates the water like a bottle of champagne, migrates to the water column, hits the surface. The ships have no buoyancy. They go to the bottom intact. But that methane then continues into the atmosphere where it spreads out and starts to cover the planet like a layer of glass. So the we are pressing closer to the CO2 equivalent in the atmosphere of close to 1,000 ppm, CO2 equivalent. Again, a portion of that is CO2. The rest is methane, nitrous oxide. If we reach 1,200 ppm, scientific consensus indicates that the planet may lose its cloud-making capacity. If that happens, temperatures will go up another 10 to 15 degrees C. Game over for all life on Earth. 10, 15 and degrees so, Celsius, not Fahrenheit, you said? Celsius. Wow. So again, it's called Venus syndrome. And the bottom line with all of this is that from our position, geoengineeringwatch.org, is this. No matter what a person's perspective is on the climate or the state of the climate, there is no legitimate discussion about it without first and foremost addressing the climate engineering, a.k.a. weather warfare operations, which certainly must be considered biological warfare operations from the toxic elements we know are falling out from climate engineering. Again, aluminum, barium, strontium, manganese, polymer fibers, graphene, surfactants. That's biological warfare. But what intended other biologicals are being put into this mix? And that's what we need to find out. And because they're already dispersing these elements, if those in power feel they're really losing control of the populations, what's to stop them from putting something much more lethal in this mix and leveling the playing field overnight? Answer is nothing is there to stop them. You mentioned stomata. The stoma are the pores in, in the epidermis of the, of the leaf, I believe. Is that what there's praying, blocking the stoma and, and trees and plants are not breathing properly and that's why they look dead? Not to mention they're so dry they become more flammable. 
uh, much more so. A number of factors uh, affecting the, the respiration. Again, the toxic elements in the soil and the intense UV and the lowering of atmospheric RH, relative humidity. So what is created is a scenario called VPD, vapor pressure deficit. No one is talking about that. So when you have an artificially lower relative humidity, and, and again, the laws of physics would, would state that we must have more overall atmospheric RH, relative humidity, on a warming planet. If we don't, there's something we're not being told, and that something is climate engineering. So in the case of the Western U.S., for example, and same with Spain and Portugal, between the ionosphere heater created high-pressure heat domes, and we can get to that in a moment, that's another layer of climate engineering, their ability to heat the atmosphere, create a high-pressure heat dome, which uh, pushes back all atmospheric humidity, prohibits moisture from even entering an area, and you add the desiccant particles. Aluminum is a desiccant. It absorbs and accretes all available moisture. So you have humidities, for example, where I live in Northern California, that are half to sometimes a third of what they should be, what they historically have been. So when an organism like a tree senses that it cannot open its stomata without losing too much moisture, it doesn't. It shuts down. It literally shuts down. It can't breathe. It can't feed. It's, it's laying dormant, almost comatose until it dies. That's called vapor pressure deficit. Same thing's happening with crops. So the crops that we see that aren't being heat domed to death in the manner I just described, the rest are being deluged and flooded. And we see such consistency, Mel, that we can only conclude that this is an intentional aspect of climate engineering at this point, affecting the food supply, thus affecting populations, thus helping to control populations. I've asked my landscaper many times, I've said, you know, why do the, our trees look so dry? Are they dead? And he tells me, no, 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 they're, they're alive. But yes, I've noticed in the past few years, a lot of trees seem like they're dead, but they're not. Is this why they're not absorbing the nutrients? Correct. They're not absorbing the nutrients of the soil. And again, they're shutting their stomata, uh, vapor pressure deficit, huge aspect. The UV, major aspect, you may have noticed, Mel, that also we see this in our regions, the larger trees, oaks, and, and other species, they're losing their upper limbs. They're dying. They're thinner, smaller limbs on the top of the crown. And you see new shoots trying to sprout out of the thicker limbs where the Cambrian layer is thicker and it's been able to protect itself from the UV, but the thinner branches can't protect themselves. So you see very um, degraded looking trees with shoots coming out of the thicker barked areas. And uh, that's just a sign of a tree that's struggling to survive. Question is, if this is happening to trees, what is happening to humanity? Because if the, tree, the trees are absorbing all these nanoparticulates, is every human being alive today absorbing the same and having different cause and effect? Absolutely no question. It cannot be otherwise. We know these elements are in our air column. We know their nanoparticulate form, which again makes them very bioavailable and bioaccumulative. There's no question that we are all absorbing these elements, and some of us are more susceptible than others. But this is an assault that we cannot escape from. That's why we focus on this so primarily at geoengineeringwatch.org, because if we can't breathe without sucking in this kind of material, if it's being absorbed into virtually everything, our food, our waters, and we now know as of about three weeks ago, peer-reviewed science study, that there is no rainfall anywhere on planet Earth that is safe to drink, 
peer-reviewed science study. They are full of not just the elements we've named already, but PFAS forever chemicals. No uncontaminated rain on the entire planet. This is a question I've always posed to anyone who discusses this subject. And it seems to me, Dane, this is a supra-government or supranational entity doing the spraying, or at least a consortium of countries operating in secrecy. Who exactly is doing the spraying? You're 100% correct. It cannot be otherwise. You can't just geoengineer or climate engineer over your own country without affecting the entire planet. We know all major powers, all global governments, which I would argue are, are simply criminal cabals masquerading as legitimate governments, but they are all involved either actively or passively. We have massive government documents. We have one Senate document, 800 pages long, specifically outlining this type of global cooperation between governments, even with, quote, otherwise adversarial relations. They're to collude and cooperate on climate engineering for the reasons I've already cited. Anyone involved with these programs is named in that particular document as having total blanket legal immunity from any consequences of these operations. So, Yes, the global cooperation is there. All roads lead back to those who print the money. Those who control the central bankers control governments. They control militaries. Thus, they control these operations. So, again, there's no question that global cooperation is a given. And the same is true with CV-19, isn't it, Mel? Because every country ultimately has had the same basic narrative with few variances. And, again, all roads lead back to those who control the printing of the money. One of the most perverse strategies to keep people in line is artificial scarcity. And now we have this new water scarcity scare everywhere. And granted, we're, we're seeing lakes at historic lows, but when there's drought in one part of the world, there's flooding in another part of the world. Water doesn't just disappear. It just changes from a, a different phase, from solid to liquid to gas. Are these droughts and floods natural or is climate engineering to blame? There is no weather on our planet at this point that can be considered natural. Once you affect this system, you affect the entire system. So if we look back at what we've disseminated at geoengineeringwatch.org for the last decade and a half, and I encourage your listeners to search our engineering drought section to more thoroughly fill in this blank. But we have, in the case of California, going back again uh, a decade plus um, live presentations, engineered drought catastrophe target California, we can see on satellite imagery these operations completely cutting off the flow of precipitation into the entire western U.S. There's absolutely no question that this is a direct result of climate intervention operations, and that moisture does end up somewhere else, as you correctly stated, where it's augmented to create the kind of flooding that we see. We know the climate engineers, they control the spigot, period. If they don't want hurricanes, for example, for the moment, perhaps to not disrupt the pumping of oil in the Gulf of Mexico, no hurricanes. We're we're halfway through the hurricane season. We've had nothing. Now, we've had massive flooding along the South Coast with nothing spinning in the Gulf. How does that happen? Because climate engineering can control where that moisture falls, where it doesn't, where a circulation forms, where it doesn't. They absolutely positively have that much control over the climate system at this point. And the, the system itself is beginning to disintegrate, though, and we see that control becoming more chaotic. But again, the long answer to your question, um, the drought deluge scenario is a hallmark of climate intervention operations, period. 
To me, Bill Gates is the front man of, or the face of GMO foods, the face of the pandemics. Is Bill Gates also the sugar daddy of global climate engineering? I would argue that Bill Gates is a, uh, a prop in the play and nothing more. These programs have existed since before he was even born. So although I would put him in the worst of all categories in the case of the, the pandemic and so forth, uh, certainly he has had a part to play in all of this. But I would argue those behind the curtain are the true string pullers, the true puppeteers. And uh, people like Mr. Gates are on the ends of those strings, but they do represent the same entities. and thus should be looked at with the same disdain. But we have had these programs, again, in operations for a, a very long time. Those in power have known this was coming. They have done everything to make it happen. And unfortunately, Mel, we have a population that's been all too willing to go along. And we hope and pray at geoengineeringwatch.org that that changes. The people understand they're fighting for their lives right here, right now. Former paradigm is done. It's gone. The party's over. It's not coming back. If any of us want to make it through what's coming, and I mean in the very near term, we have to wake up, decide what part we can play and what's unfolding. And everyone can play a part as well. We hope they do. We start spot fires of awareness. You fuel those fires, expand them, have others do the same. If we can push this to light, if we can push the climate engineering to light and people realize it's toxifying their air, destroying their food production, and and perhaps even their homes and look at look at Pakistan right now. You've seen Pakistan right yes. now, a third yes. of the country underwater. If we can push this to the light of day, we would argue we have a chance of stopping it because hopefully U.S. military personnel that are participating and being told they're doing something benevolent, something for the common good, realize that that couldn't be further from the truth. They are literally participating in their own demise. We need to wake them up. I believe our planet is alive, and I believe that it... It could naturally self-regulate temperature-wise. Could this be why we have volcanoes erupting and, and, and they throw material into the atmosphere to reflect sunlight? Or when hurricanes develop, you know, via Project Cyrus, do you lend credence to all of this? That's a very interesting question. And, and thank you for asking. And I, I must admit, from, from even from a purely scientific standpoint, from everything I see, I would concur with your conclusion. The planet absolutely appears in so many ways to be a, a, a living uh, organism. And how, how can we not look at it that way? When we have so many symbiotic relationships of, of organisms on the planet. Why would we not look at it that way? And your uh, examples would fit completely with what we know from paleo data that in every circumstance, no matter what has happened to the planet, it has found a way to press on, the, even the, on, on the volcanoes, the the era, the snowball Earth, it's uh, labeled scientifically at, at 600 million years ago plus. It, the planet was, it's believed from paleo data, encased in ice. Theoretically, it would have never recovered from that because the albedo, the reflectivity was, was too total. But the ice near the equatorial regions, because it froze slowly, was clear. This is the scientific hypothesis. So it would have allowed some sunlight through, keeping some organisms alive. And volcanism eventually broke through the ice, eventually put enough CO2 in the atmosphere to begin to generate warming, and the process of life began again. It's so miraculous. And if you look at 
it, the interaction of organisms and their their symbiotic um, relationships in, in nature without being disturbed, it's beyond miraculous. And so back to climate engineering, there's no excuse for the, the damage the human race has done to the planet. And I'm not excusing that. I'm very aware of it. We've been horrible stewards of the planet. But we can say definitively, if climate engineering had never been deployed, never, and the planet had been allowed to respond to the damage done on its own, that we would be an exponentially better place right now. And if we look at the the Pliocene epoch that was about 5.2 million years ago, CO2 counts much higher than they are today, was the Western North American continent a droughted out and completely incinerated uh, wasteland? No, completely different. Lush, major growth in the Western US because of the increased rain that must happen on a warming planet. Non-toxic rain that allowed the organisms to uptake the CO2, allowed the process to find a new equilibrium. Climate engineering is a toxic straight jacket that is prohibiting the planet from responding to the damage done. By the way, speaking of albedo, it hardly ever changes, but I remember back in uh, 1991, I read the articles that there was a two-year change in albedo, global albedo, caused by the large Mount Pinatubo volcanic eruption in June 1991. So I think, yes, the Earth does certain things to regulate temperature and other, you know, climate patterns. It, it does. On Pinatubo, again, what, what's necessary to examine with that, and that is the very premise for solar radiation management. So your listeners know the stated premise of what's happening in our skies, jet aircraft spraying, these light scattering particles, solar radiation management to reflect some of the sun's incoming thermal energy, mimicking a volcano. So if we weave all this together, yes, Pinatubo dropped global temperatures, I believe, officially half a degree C, one degree Fahrenheit, but it also damaged the ozone layer, and volcanic eruptions do damage the ozone layer. And now we know that that short-term cooling, if it continues, morphs into a long-term protracted warming. So the whole premise for climate engineering doing what they are doing decade after decade after decade is completely flawed scientifically. And we have stated this on the record at geoengineeringwatch.org from day one. Not only are they toxifying the entire biosphere, disrupting the rain cycle, and we and we know these programs are not meant to be benevolent anyway. They're malevolent. They're a weapon of war. They're a mechanism of power. But from if we look at just the official narrative why these programs are going on, that is completely flawed scientifically. The short-term cooling that's caused by putting light scattering particles in the atmosphere is very quickly overtaken by an even worsened warming because of the destroyed ozone layer, disrupted hydrological cycle, damage to CO2 absorbing mechanisms, forests, plankton, trapping more heat than it deflects. The very premise of solar radiation management is completely flawed. So when will the science community wake up and tell the truth and acknowledge this elephant in our sky and help us to bring it to a halt while there's still anything left to salvage? So the the premise of the volcanic cooling, again, the planet might be able to carry this out on its own on a short-term basis. But when man tries to mimic that and do it permanently to keep business as usual, very bad things happen, and they are. So you're saying if man tries to play God, and they do this worldwide, what would happen? Let's say, let's just pretend that we lose the majority of the ozone layer. 
Doesn't that mean a sterilized Earth surface with all the UV, UV radiation that would penetrate? It does. It does. It doesn't mean that you, you burn up overnight. It means you can't grow food. You can't go out in the sun. Oceans are dead. No food. Cancer, cataracts, immune system. Yeah. All the above. Absolutely. And, and we are perilously close to that point. So again, the NASA geoengineering watch.org works with a former NASA contract engineer. We furnished him with state of the art equipment to meter the increasing UV radiation and based on his calculations at the current rate of destruction, and I, I, I want to really premise that statement with the current rate of destruction because the climate engineers can alter what they're doing at any given point in time and, and thus alter the trajectory. But based on the current trajectory, mathematically and statistically, we could face a functional ozone layer collapse. doesn't mean it's 100% gone, but it's functionally collapsed in as little as two years. When I listen That's to... All. That, that's incredible. I'm thinking of, of the infamous David Keith. When I listen to engineers like him, David Keith, he's always talking about the proposal of geoengineering, almost as if it's not happening yet, but it's happening. But he always talks as if it's a plan for the future. Why do they do that? It's very effective at pacifying populations until the last possible moment. And, and populations, unfortunately, Mel, have reached a point, and I know you know this, where they ignore their own senses. They ignore the burning UV on their skin. They ignore what they see in the sky and choose to believe what they're told because that feels better. feels better to believe that someday if things get bad enough, we could, may, might want to deploy climate engineering. When, in fact, it's been raging for 75-plus years and, and now more than ever in our skies. So... Again, for people like Dr. Keith and, and your listeners, if they view our film, The Dimming, which is available for free, we, we had a tremendous amount of effort uh, and, and expense into that film. We made it available for free the moment it was done. It's on the homepage of geoengineeringwatch.org, and they can see Dr. Keith, the world's most recognized geoengineer, I would argue the face of public disinformation for this subject. They can see me confronting him at an international conference. I was banned after that that uh, question, by the way, from the future conferences. But uh, they can see him state on the record when I asked him had any toxicological studies been done about dumping tens of millions of tons of aluminum nanoparticles into the atmosphere annually. Had any toxicological studies been done? And he first tried to dodge the question and stated, and this is all on film, all, all on the dimming documentary, that, well, there's a lot of material up there. A little more won't hurt. And Before they cut me off, I, I managed to complete the question. That material is not aluminum. Have you studied aluminum? And as you may have seen, if you viewed the dimming mail, that he said, well, no, we haven't studied aluminum. Could terrible things happen tomorrow? We don't know. Is that an acceptable answer from the world's most recognized climate engineer? But that's the attitude they have, Mel. And that's why, as you know, with project, for example, project Starfish Prime, the detonation of hydrogen bombs in the magnetosphere, yeah. they had no idea what would happen. They did it anyway. And by the way, folks, if you're listening now, I want you, if you want to do it now, stop this audio program, the, the audio, or after you listen to the program, go watch The Dimming. It's an incredible documentary from beginning to end with great people. Some are friends that have been on this program. Some of them are no longer with us. It was, it was really great to see all of them contributing to this, to this cause. Now, obviously, the geoengineering campaign, Dane, that is taking place must be very expensive. Is this part of our federal budget? 
or is it considered a black project? And of course, we have heard of the lost trillions lost by the departments of, of you know, defense and other branches of government. You're exactly right. You're exactly on the right track. And we have the Pentagon officially not being able to account for, I believe it's 30 or $31 trillion in the last 20 plus years. Where did that extra $30 trillion come from to begin with? And how do you lose it? How do you lose track of that much money? So again, we're, we're back to those who can print as much as they want for whatever they want. That's why the dollar has been so protected as the global reserve currency to protect those powers that are most manipulating these systems. Although we do have the other countries involved, China, Russia, no question, they're all still involved. At some point though, Mel, just like mafia families who often cooperate on, on many aspects of their criminal activities, at some point when there's not enough to go around, they may begin to infight and what happens then when the, the atmosphere, the weather becomes a no-holds-barred battlefield? And, and again, we are probably perilously close to that now. And when we see the point of total desperation, when the abrupt climate collapse that's occurring becomes so runaway that those in power are at the epitome of desperation, will they trigger a nuclear exchange to try to put enough particles in the atmosphere to create a nuclear winter scenario. We have a patent, a U.S. patent, specifically advocating for exactly that, detonating nuclear weapons to put enough atmospheric particulate loading to slow down a runaway warming event. If they do this, that will seal all of our fates. That will be the end of the ozone layer, the end of life on Earth, and we believe they're desperate enough to try this. And not to digress, but since you're talking about the U.S. dollar and, you know, as a powerful foreign reserve currency, which is no longer there, and we might be losing the petrodollar status very soon. Just today, I just received this, that this, this is breaking news. Pope Francis instructs the Vatican entities around the world to move all funds back to Vatican, the Vatican Bank by September the 30th. All of them around the world. Any any ideas why that would be? And I know this might not be an area of expertise for you. That's interesting to me. I hadn't heard of that today, but I'm, I thank you for sharing that. Uh, what, what, how I would weave that in is this, Mel. So many factors are so far past the breaking point that those in power are certainly going to do something soon. And they're not going to let populations around the globe wake up to what's been done to them so that those populations might grab their proverbial pitchforks and torches and begin looking for anyone and everyone responsible. I would argue that we're, we're very close. And, and what you just cited is perhaps a, a glaring red flag indicator of that. We're very close to the power structures playing very big cards. They know they're losing control. They know they can't support populations any longer. Populations are beginning to wake up. So I would say we are likely close to some very big shoes dropping. That can be some of the factors we already mentioned or, or other factors still. But again, we're back to that point that the party's over. It's not coming back. We're fighting for our lives. We need people to behave accordingly. We need them to help us push this to the light of day. Again, we can't hide from what's happening in our skies. We can't. They can take us all out anytime they want with what they're doing in our skies. If we prioritize, if we wake enough people up fast enough, we could change the flavor of the coming impact. We're not going to stop it. It's going to happen. If you're going 100 miles an hour and you're 10 feet from impact, you can put the brakes on all you want. You're going to hit. 
And that is our scenario. But we could change the composition of what's coming. And that's worth fighting for. If anyone can make it through what's coming, that's worth fighting for. What is your opinion on the and what's behind the obliteration? Or what's behind the, the rash of fires at food factories around the world? I would argue again that that is a harbinger of those in power curtailing food supplies to mire populations in a daily struggle for finding their next bite. And populations that are forced to face that scenario can't do much of anything else, can they? They can't really stand up to those in power because they're simply trying to survive. So if we look at the assaults on those food production facilities, and we look at the consistency with which we see crops being crushed around the globe, as, as you know, Ukraine, as, as that element of the global food chain was taken out, India actually expected a bumper crop of wheat. They thought they were going to actually be able to make up for some of the losses in Ukraine. And at the worst possible window, massive high-pressure heat dome happened over some of their largest crop-producing regions and cut that crop production in half. And for your listeners to, to better understand, I, I know you've probably gone over them with this in the on this in the past, but technology like HARP in Alaska, the HARP facility, which is a ground-based ionosphere heater, a transmission facility that can beam three and a half million watts into the ionosphere, causes an electrical chain reaction, heats the ionosphere to extraordinarily high temperatures. That bulges space up and down. The downward push forms a high-pressure heat dome, and there's about a nearly a hundred of this type of facility around the globe, although HARP is the largest. But with these steerable facilities, and they can steer the, the, the transmissions from these facilities so they can hit various regions around the globe – they absolutely can and are creating high-pressure heat domes. That technology is not disputed, not scientifically, not militarily. And, and so we see that kind of consistency, that crops at the worst possible moment being crushed with either a record heat dome or record deluge, record hail, all the above, over and over and over around the world. In your documentary, you show a, an impressive image of a, what seems to be a pressure dome, a high-pressure dome, where an entire circle, thousands of miles in diameter, and it stands surrounded by clouds. So it's just a perfect circle, but nothing can cross that dome. And California and the western United States are in the way. Is this, and, and of course without rain, is this how they're causing droughts? Yes, that is one of the means by which they cause. I know the image you're speaking about, and it is... I mean, there's no meteorologist that has enough intelligence to uh, sign his name that doesn't know this is going on. And that image is so telling. And so, again, back to what I just described with the ionosphere heaters. So that downward pushing air from the heated atmosphere that has to expand, that keeps the heat from escaping at night, and that downward push then pushes out in every direction circularly, which causes the blocking of any incoming precipitation, as you correctly cited. Another way that they can diminish precipitation when they want to migrate it across one region to another region, if you overseed that moisture, too many condensation nuclei, and this is, this occurs in Northern California all the time, they will migrate moisture right across us and nothing falls. When there's too many condensation nuclei, the droplets don't combine to a big enough drop to fall so it just migrates. So we have day after day of featureless 
cloud canopy where I live in a remote location. All you can hear is jets above it. Nothing falls, nothing. The rain comes late and less if it comes at all. And then it shows up as it gets inland, wherever they want to drop it. They've cooled it off with chemical ice nucleating elements, They've which that cold, dense air descends, uh, the cold, dense air descends to the surface and thus creates the illusion of a cooler world than we actually have. So by these, both of these means, they can completely block precipitation. And, and Mel, you've seen the um, all the stories on Lake Mead, correct? Oh, I have. Even the bodies that are being uncovered. So that the, the radical drop in water levels at Lake Mead began to gain a lot of attention going back, you know, a couple months. So what's happened in the last month? In the middle of summer, hottest summer recorded in North America ever, Lake Mead water levels went up three yep. feet. They gained three feet because I, I would argue that the Lake Mead scenario, Lake Powell scenario, were getting a bit too much attention for the powers that be. Populations could begin to panic when 40 million people depend on that water. So they pumped an unexpected, not predicted, massive monsoon moisture. Vegas flooded three times in the course of a month during August, and they managed to increase the water level by three feet in the middle of summer. And and now so many people have just uh, been pacified back into their normal amb- uh, ambivalence on everything. And it, it, that's how much they control the spigot. I mean, they were doing this in Vietnam 50 plus years ago. How much more effective is their technology now? And for people to pretend this isn't going on, I would argue we live in an asylum. So many people refusing to face irrefutable fact that threatens their very existence and they refuse to face it. I'm so glad, Dane, that you're validating what you just said, because I've been in Arizona for 25 years and I don't think I've ever seen monsoons as strong as we saw in August, just August of this year. And I was thinking of Lake Powell, Lake Mead. I even spoke with some higher ups in the Las Vegas industry who told me they were very concerned, very concerned if those lakes were going down the way they were, that means the end of Las Vegas. And as you know, that's a powerhouse of, uh, you know, I'm not going to mention the people who are behind it, but yes. uh, all of a sudden, and even Arizona and the Colorado River were affected by it. California was talking about diverting water. So all of a sudden, boom, all these monsoons happened and that that uh, the, the dire news went away. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. And Vegas has hedged their bets, as you know. They... They, at the cost of one and a half billion dollars, that was the final in cost, the drain hole they've put in Lake Mead. Not sure if you've seen our report on no. that, but we have, uh, it's posted at geoengineeringwatch.org. It's called, titled Drilling Under Lake Mead to Drain It to the Last Drop. And we have the actual film footage from the um, the engineers that went under Lake Mead, the American Geophysical Union footage from that they bored a hole 24 feet wide under Lake Mead at the lowest point, 600 feet deep that tunnel is. It was an extraordinary feat of engineering, but there is literally a drain plug in Lake Mead, and some of those pumps are already running. That's to supply Vegas until the last possible drop. The film footage is incredible. The tunnel boring machine that was used in that was made specifically for this project, and the vast majority of people have no idea. That Las Vegas has a drain plug in Lake Mead that when, when it can't flow out of Hoover Dam, they can continue to suck every last drop out of that lake. Huh. Interesting. 
And I've always wondered, we have plenty, plenty of water under our feet. You have to drill really deep sometimes, but we have plenty of water. And I wasn't going to say this, but I forgot I should have had the information here. But a, 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 a PhD researcher who was in Arizona, I believe a year or two ago, investigating what I'm just saying, all of a sudden he disappeared. Because what he was looking at was the fact that we have so much water under the desert. And, you know, he's presumed to be dead. But even yesterday, I saw news coming out of Saudi Arabia in the in the desert where there's a big hole popping water, incredible amounts of water coming out of the desert. Have you seen that? I haven't seen that particular footage. I know a bit about ground hydrology. I, I've done about 50 wells in my um, span of, of working and uh, with property and, and land and, and uh, as a contractor in California and Arizona. And although there are astounding regions that have groundwater like this, and there, there, that was the case in Libya. You know, that's one of the reasons why they took Qaddafi exactly, out. Exactly, yes. Lib- you, you know the scenario, yeah. Libya was, was uh, tapped in, tipped into that, was, uh, was going to uh, help benefit the population from that. And uh, he was not going along with Western dictates and, and he was taken out. But we do see the accessible water, and this is key. Accessible groundwater in many regions is going dry. They're going dry all over Northern California, Shasta County. Um, so any deep strata water can be, with exceptions like the one you, you described, but can be beyond the reach of any practical use. And so, and, and it doesn't alter the fact that the forests are dying, drying, dying, or uh, burning up. And, and then we have regions turning to desalinization, which is, as we already see in the Middle East, it's, it's absolute cataclysm. The waste product from desalinization is, is, is causing immense problems in, in Chile that's tried this. They're, because they dump it offshore, their fishing industries have completely crashed. You just can't, um, as the proverb goes, rob Peter to pay Paul only so long. We need to stop interfering with the planet's life support systems. That's what we advocate for at geoengineeringwatch.org. Here's another elephant in the room. Let's talk about meteorologists and NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which, by the way, I didn't know that it was under the U.S. Department of Commerce. Don't they question what they see unless they're taught at the university that there you know, are new cloud formations? And I've heard this before. Uh, and the cloud atlas, there's one called Homo mutatus clouds. I mean, if you <laughs> if you look at that Homo human mutatus created by humans, how do meteorologists don't know? Or is there a federal gag order on weathermen and NOAA? Is that even legal? There is a federal gag order. There's an illegal federal gag order on all National Weather Service and all National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration employees. And I'm laughing at what you stated. I'm with you. I, I just... It's such a circus of insanity that it's difficult to truly get one's arms around it. But yes, there is a legal federal gag order. I spoke to a no employee myself who said, quote, uh, we all know what's going on. We don't know what to do. We're not allowed to talk about it. And, and I would argue that at what point does a person's employment mean nothing? It will mean nothing on a dead planet. Their paychecks and pensions will mean absolutely nothing. And this is not 
off on the horizon. It's it's kicking in the front door right now. We are so close to collapse, and what you just brought up about the Vatican is a is a giant harbinger of how close it is. So I would plead with those in academia, those in the climate science community, band together, stand up, and tell the truth while it can still matter. We have to take our one and only break. I've realized that we just went after the hour because I was so enthralled in what you're saying. But when I come when we come back, I want to discuss the pilots. If they are being piloted, these jets, because I have a, a wonder. We've had the technology since the 1970s. Boeing, at least it has it, where they don't need a pilot. They can remotely control the planes. Because I find it very interesting that I understand, you know, compartmentalize and, uh, you know, secrecy and, and non-disclosure agreements and threats to families and self and all that. But I wonder, after so many decades, if why hasn't one person... One person, I know commercial pilots have come forward, but anybody flying these planes, I want to hear from you if you have heard from them in private or, or, or something else. But how can people learn more about your work, your website, the documentary again, which I highly suggest everyone to, to watch? Geoengineeringwatch.org, non-political. And we are simply trying to bring this issue to light, get people to investigate. The dimming documentary is there for free. We have materials that's extremely effective at waking others. A picture's worth a thousand words. It's much more effective than walking outdoors, pointing at the sky and ranting. We pass those materials on for less than our cost in the case of our printed materials. We also just at, at the request of many, we now have a geoengineeringwatch.org, very effective t-shirt, front and back. It's like a walking billboard. It's, it strikes up a conversation. It gets people to ask about this issue along with geoengineeringwatch cards that are scannable, small business card size, that people can go straight to the dimming, straight to our website. We offer all those materials to help people to wake those up around them, have those people do the same. If we can get this issue to light, Mel, we have a chance of stopping it from the inside out. Dan, you're doing an incredible job, and I'm so privileged to have you back. I wish we would have you more often, not wait eight years, but we have one more hour to come with Dane Wigington. This is Mel Hosselrick, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know. <laughs>